This is a Federal News Network podcast. A federal arbitrator recently stopped the Social Security Administration from moving ahead on a partial labor contract with the Association of Administrative Law Judges. The remaining parts of the proposed contract are tied up in federal court. Yet the administrative law judges say Social Security management will not bargain with them. Now, in what the union sees as a breakthrough, the arbitrator has ordered Social Security back to the bargaining table. For an update, we speak with the union president, Melissa McIntosh. Ms. McIntosh, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. All right. And just a few weeks ago, actually about 10 days ago, the arbitrator said that the SSA could not move ahead on the imposition of the partial labor contract that you had. Now there's even a newer development. They are forcing SSA back to the table. So review for us where the whole thing stands now. Well, we have now concluded the third bad faith bargaining arbitration and the third independent arbitrator, John Nicholas, determined that SSA committed bad faith bargaining. And it was so egregious. And they committed unfair labor practices within the bad faith bargaining that he has ordered us back to the table from square one. We're even ordered to start over by negotiating ground rules. Got it. Because the imposition of the contract, which earlier, again, 10 days ago was overturned, imposed 20 clauses that had not been signed off yet by the union, but imposed those on the work agreement, whereas nine of them still remained tied up in federal court. So the question is, are all 29 possible clauses now back on the table at square one? They absolutely are. So the second bad faith bargaining decision you just referenced was about the illegal imposition of 20 articles. So those were rescinded by order of arbitrator Arrigo. Now we were left with the big picture arbitration. Did SSA commit bad faith bargaining? Did it commit unfair labor practices to the extent it was necessary to reboot the whole process from square one? And the answer was yes. And throughout all of this process, has SSA been communicating with you? I mean, is there any kind of non-official talks going on that hey, guys, this is not the way we want this to go. It's certainly not going the way we, the union, wanted. Have there been, I don't know what you'd call it, ex parte talks? <laughs> I have attempted to communicate with the uh, Trump administration holdover, Commissioner Andrew Saul. And he will not actually directly communicate with me, but he did direct the head of the management negotiation team, which, again, was found to have egregiously committed bad faith bargaining. And they uh, characterized my position as um, inflammatory rhetoric, and they will not back down. And they are clinging to a Trump-era union-busting panel order. They hope to impose against us. And if they can do that, they will have wiped out our union. And at this point, we're calling upon the Biden administration to please direct Mr. Saul to stand down. This is the third decision. And SSA needs to not appeal this because here's what happens if they don't appeal it. We go back to the bargaining table as equals, and we negotiate a contract that serves the American public. Is it necessary to continue to battle us? It's just not in the public interest. And so we are hoping that the Biden administration will direct Mr. Saul to stop the fight with this small union of judges and stand down, not appeal this decision. 
And just to clarify, the panel that you mentioned, that's the federal impasses panel, part of the Federal Labor Relations Authority that had ruled against the union and your contention and why those clauses are in court was that the panel itself was illegally impaneled. Yes, that's absolutely right. And it is of note that one of the first things President Biden did when he took office was to fire all of the panel members. They were acting in an extraordinary way and and not the positive definition of extraordinary. They were committing um, outrageous union busting and their hyper pro-agency determinations. What they left us with was a, a contract that we could not survive under or serve our members. So, you know, Commissioner Saul will not, and I have asked him repeatedly, will you come with us, union and agency, and ask for the withdrawal of that impossible union busting panel order? And the answer was no. They're clinging to their ill-gotten gains during the union-busting era we just came out of. We're speaking with Melissa McIntosh, president of the Association of Administrative Law Judges. And you mentioned that the union could not survive and that they were union-busting. What in that agreement or non-agreement, I guess we should call it, made it union-busting as opposed to just terms that you would rather have more liberal? Right. You know, I've spent my career in in labor law in the federal sector and labor relations. Reasonable minds differ. People have different ideas about how to best make work happen and serve the public. That's not what happens at SSA. What happened was, for example, arbitrator Nicholas found the agency committed surface bargaining over official time. Now, what does that mean? They were only pretending to bargain. They really weren't bargaining. They gave us so little time. It was impossible for us to serve the union members. So that would make us not viable if we had no ability to serve our members. That's union busting. They, in what arbitrator Nicholas characterized as taking my ball and going home behavior, they refuse to even acknowledge our judicial function. I mean, that's what a contract's about, what work you do, how you do it, your role in the organization. It was petulant. I could go on and on. There were several findings of unfair labor practices that do relate to that panel order that the the impasses panel backed them up and said, sure, that sounds great to us. One one less union to contend with in the federal sector. Now, we're on the air Thursday and the arbitrator, arbitrator Nicholas, came out with his finding on Tuesday. Have you heard anything subsequent yet from SSA, which is the one that is the subject of the arbitrator's ruling to say you've got to start negotiating again? No. No, we haven't. I assume they are considering what they would like to do next. And it is our sincere hope that they will not appeal this. They will turn over a new leaf, which they said they wanted to. But that's all been window dressing. For them to cling to that union busting panel order speaks volumes. They still want to eliminate our small union of judges. So it's, again, our hope that the Biden administration will take note of this and tell Mr. Saul, Let's focus on serving the public. This is not an administration that is here to bust a small union of judges. Aside from a sufficient amount of official time to be able to take care of members' complaints and so forth, what other specific clause content are you hoping to get that will strengthen the union, in your view? 
we think it's critical to recognize our judicial function. One of the things that the agency was very aggressive about was eliminating mention of the Administrative Procedure Act. That is so critical to us because that is the way we ensure the due process rights of the claimants who appear before us. So we want a clear, robust, um, legally consistent description of what our function is at SSA. I think, you know, as judges, that's one of the most important provisions that we care about. And that was not in what was imposed as a contract just a few weeks ago. No. Um, well, that was pe- that's still pending um, and stay. That's a part of the panel order. Got it. But that is as well what arbitrator Nicholas characterized as uh, taking my ball and going home activity when they drew a line through every, every aspect of judicial function. They wanted to eliminate it in the contract. And that really, truly epitomizes bad faith bargaining. All right. So now the uh, the proverbial ball is in SSA's court, so to speak. Well, it is because it's their decision now. Are they going to appeal this decision? They had 30 days from the submission by arbitrator Nicholas to file an appeal with the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And it is, again, our hope that they just stop this. They've been relentlessly fighting us. We get decision after decision. We have seven findings of unfair labor practices by the Federal Labor Relations Authority. We'll either settle or complaints will issue. We have three independent arbitrators saying you commit bad faith bargaining. Enough is enough. It's it's time to move forward. It's time to go back to the table and start over and refocus. Melissa McIntosh is president of the Association of Administrative Law Judges. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented 
terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most 
And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. 
I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.